O God, who by thy Holy Spirit does give to some the word of wisdom, to others the word of knowledge, and to others the word of faith. We praise thy name for the gifts of grace manifested in thy servant, St. Paul. And we pray that thy church may never be destitute of such gifts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with thee in the same spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, I'm a little foggy today for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm suffering from the love that is being passed around the office right now, um, a head cold. And the other thing is, I was literally 25 minutes ago released from jury duty. So, <clears throat> my mind is swimming with all kinds of feelings and thoughts and frustrations. If you've never had the experience of jury duty, it's a frustrating experience, but our civic duty, nevertheless. Well, we are in Acts chapter 17 today, and we're going to go ahead and read through the second part of the chapter. We already started to take a look at Paul's time here in Athens. And uh, we didn't finish it out last week because it really is a remarkable section of the book of Acts, very significant, and I want us to take a look at it in close detail. So we're going to go back and read through this section again, the second part of Acts chapter 17, and then pick up where we left off last week, which was basically where Paul stands up and begins to preach on Mars Hill to this great debating society and to these famous philosophers. So Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Now Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, the them of course are his companions who he has left behind in Macedonia. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Amaris and others with them. We said that as Paul progressed through this second missionary journey, he had a strategy that he was working out. And we said that that strategy focused primarily on the great cities of the ancient world. When Paul first started off on that first missionary journey, he traveled through whole regions preaching the gospel. He went to the Isle of Cyprus, for example, and preached all over the Isle. But in this second missionary journey, we see Paul being far more focused on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. We said it's understandable as to why Paul wanted to do that. Uh, he believed that time was short and that it was important to get the gospel out to as many people as quickly as possible. And the best way, he surmised, to do that was to preach in the great cities. If you can establish a Christian presence in those great metropolitan areas where everything comes and goes, then it wouldn't be long before the gospel, like everything else, would be coming and going as well. And so we see Paul focusing on the great cities. Uh, we're going to see that Paul, of course, has already gone to Philippi. He's gone to Thessalonica. He's eventually going to go to Ephesus. In fact, the book of Acts begins in a city. It begins in Jerusalem, the great spiritual city of the ancient world, and it ends in a great city. It ends in Rome, uh, the most famous city of the day. Well, Paul comes here in the 17th chapter of Acts to one of the great cities of the ancient world, and one that was unique, uh, unlike any other city that he'd been to thus far, and that is the city of Athens. And we talked a little bit about this. We said there was hardly anything that could compare to the glory of Athens as it was in the 5th century B.C. Uh, Athens was a remarkable city. You recall that I said that the Greeks had gotten into a war with the Persians. The great Persian Empire uh, was advancing westward from the Indus River and invaded Greece. And at one point, we're told that the Persian army numbered in excess of a million men. And at only one point, the, the Greeks at most could muster maybe 100,000. And yet they managed in a series of engagements to not only to defeat the Persians, but to drive them back. The great battle of Marathon, the great land battle, was associated with this campaign. And then there was a great naval battle also associated with the same campaign at Salamis. And this had ushered in this glory period for the Greeks. Uh, the Persians had absolutely destroyed the land, and the Greeks had risen up with a will, and they had rebuilt it, and they had rebuilt it in grand style. The slide that you see on the scene depicts Greece as it would have been in its heyday, a glorious place. This was the age of the great philosophers, Plato and Socrates. This was the age of the great artists. This was the age of uh, great architecture. It was also the first democracy in the history of the world. Uh, the first city-state that was governed by elected officials, the people actually electing those who would be their governors. 
This took place in Athens. It was a remarkable period, but it was short-lived. Uh, it only lasted for about 50 years. Then the Athenians got into a very costly war with the Spartans that lasted for about 27 years. And after that, Athens had been on the decline. So that by the time the Apostle Paul got there in the first century, Athens really was, in the words of E.M. Blakelock, the great commentator from New Zealand, it really was in the late afternoon of its glory. It was a shadow of what it had once been. But it was still considered to be the intellectual center of the ancient world. Now, it wasn't producing giants like Socrates and Plato anymore. Uh, those who were appearing on the scene at this point were at best imitators of the giants who had gone before. But nevertheless, the feeling there in Athens was that this was the great intellectual center. And I said to you last week that of all the places that I think the Apostle Paul visited, he must have looked forward to going to Athens the most. Because it would have been the kind of city that he grew up in. Paul was raised in what is modern-day Turkey, in a place called Tarsus, which was one of the great university cities of the ancient world. And all the indicators suggest to us that Paul actually had a very fine secular education in addition to his very fine religious education. We all know that he was trained under one of the foremost rabbis of the day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. But the fact that Paul, here in Athens, is able to debate with the philosophers, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and not just debate with them, but actually quote some of their same poets, Cleanthes and Aratus, indicates to us that Paul had a very fine classical education in addition to his very fine religious education, which made him an ideally suited candidate to bring the gospel to Athens. So I've always thought that when Paul went to Athens, he must have looked forward to going to this city. A city that was famous, a city where there was a great deal of intellectual ferment, the kind of place where Paul probably would have done very well. And I think that he probably was impressed by Athens. But I pointed out to you last week that while Paul was impressed by Athens, he was not overawed by it. I said that's a very good example for us as Christians in the 21st century. There have been a great many advances that have taken place in the 20th century, uh, in terms of science and technology, and as Christians, we should not denigrate those accomplishments. Uh, we should thank God for them. But while we can thank God for them, we should not be overawed by them. Uh, Brian McGreevy, last night at the Wednesday service, preached on the subject of wisdom. I don't know if you realize that there is a profound difference between wisdom and information. You know, we're living in the information age. If you want the answer to anything, nobody has to go to the library anymore. N nobody needs that, that heavy set of Collier's encyclopedias anymore. What do you have to do? Google it. That's, that's exactly right. We have all these search engines and they're right there on your cell phone. Are you aware of the fact that the technology in your cell phone is more advanced than the technology that put a man on the moon in the 60s? That's amazing, isn't it? Right there at your fingertips. And so we have access to all of this information. But information is not the same thing as wisdom. In other words, you may be able to Google how you clone a sheep. Well, that doesn't tell you whether you should clone a sheep. Well, you see, that's what Paul was contending with here. There was a great deal of intelligence in Athens, 
great deal of intellectual ferment. And, and Paul by no means denigrated that, but he was not overawed by it. And we should not be overawed by it either. Where is true wisdom to be found? Well, not in the things of this world. The things of the world, you get bombarded with information, but, but the ability to take that information and put it to good use, now that takes wisdom. And where does that come from? The scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when Paul arrived in Athens, even though it was a remarkable place, kind of place that he would have enjoyed visiting, we're told that he was provoked in his spirit because he saw that the city was filled with idols. The idolatry. I said last week that the ancients used to say it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. There was a temple on every corner. And you can see right there in that picture of the Acropolis, the numerous temples there. The, the great temple to Athena, uh, the great temple to Neptune, uh, the great temple to Nike, the goddess of victory. And then there was the, the temple, the, the, the most well-preserved temple in the world today is the temple to Hephaestus, the god of the metal workers. Let me tell you, the Romans and the Greeks had a god for everything. No exaggeration. They even had a god for the door hinges and for the compost pile. Now, as I said to you last week, there are some places where you go, some towns you go into, and there's a bar on every corner. When you went into Athens, there was a temple, there was a shrine. It was a place of worship on every corner. And Paul was provoked in his spirit by this. Why? Well, because as a Jew, he had been trained and he knew that there were not many gods. There was one true God. And so here he is walking into this city with all of this intellectual ferment that has this great reputation as the center of thinking and knowledge and wisdom. And what he finds is what? People worshiping a multiplicity of deities. It was very discouraging to Paul. And the other thing that was very discouraging to Paul was that when he arrived in Athens, he encountered the Epicureans and the Stoics, these two groups of famous philosophers. The Epicureans, who were the followers of a, a teacher by the name of Epicurus, or Epicurus, and the Stoics, who were the followers of an earlier leader by the name of Zeno. Now, they were very different. They had very different views of life, but they had the same worldview. They had different views of how you should live out your day-to-day -day life, but it was based upon their same view of the world and history. The Greeks believed that life and history really had no real value, no real purpose. Uh, they believed, and I, I think I pointed this out to you last week, that history is cyclical. It's like a carnival barker's wheel of fortune. Round and round and round it goes, and where it stops, nobody knows. Uh, they were very discouraged by life and history. They didn't even think there was much value in studying history, to be perfectly honest with you, because history was like the seasons of the year. Spring turns into summer, summer turns into autumn, autumn turns into winter, but then what happens? Well, the whole cycle starts all over again, and so it's just meaningless. And so the question is, if that's the way the world works, if that's the way history is, the question is, how do you live in that kind of a meaningless universe? Well, the Epicureans and the Stoics had two different perspectives on this. Same view of the meaninglessness of history and the ultimate meaningless of life, but on a day-to-day -day basis, the Epicureans basically said, 
The only thing you can do is live for the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow, what? You're going to die. <laughs> you only go around once, uh, grab all the gusto you can get. That's what the Epicureans believed. Now, the Stoics were a little more noble than that. The Stoics believed that you never knew what was going to hit you tomorrow, but whatever it was, the best thing that you could do was what? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, stiff upper lip, you know. Just sort of plow through. And we noted that the Stoics were not an ignoble people. They were better than the Epicureans, certainly. Um, Marcus Aurelius, for instance, was trained in the way of the Stoics. But even though they were more noble than the Epicureans, Paul found them to be very discouraging because, again, as a Jew, he knew that history did have a purpose. I use that image, and I'm not going to do it again, by the way, that image of the 1812 overture. You won't forget that one anytime soon, will you? <laughs> and how it starts off, and how there's a climax in the middle, but then there's this grand finale, and that's the way that Paul looked at history. God created all things. There was a climax in the midst of history when that word which called all things into being came down and took on human flesh, and we beheld His glory. One day, that same word made flesh, who was born in great obscurity in Bethlehem of Judea, will come again with power and great glory. And every eye shall see him, and every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul knew that was the Christian view of history. And so when he walked into Athens, even though it was an impressive place, he was discouraged by it, he was depressed by it. And he wanted to proclaim the gospel to them. Now, how did he do that? Well, we said last week that he started with Christian apologetics. He didn't immediately start by preaching. He started by finding a point of contact with these people. On previous occasions, he had always gone into the synagogue, hadn't he? Where he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures. Well, the problem with going in Athens was while he reasoned with the Jews from the Scripture, he certainly couldn't reason with the Epicureans and the Stoics from the Scriptures. But he recognized that because this was an intellectual group, he needed to reason with them. Now, the question was, how do you reason with people? You've got to have some sort of a starting point, so what was the starting point for him? The starting point for Paul was a recognition that these people were searching for something. He said, as I walk through your city... I couldn't help but notice that you are a very religious people. There's the point of contact. For as I looked about, I saw that you had temples everywhere, even a temple dedicated to an unknown God. He acknowledged the fact that what? These people were searching for something. Their view of life said that it was meaningless. There was no purpose. Henry Ford's view of history, we said last week. What's history? Henry Ford said it's the succession of one damn thing after another. And that's exactly the way the Greeks looked at this. And yet there was something within them. There was something within their own spirits that provoked them to seek. Maybe there's a, a God that we have not encountered yet that has the answers to these deepest longings of the human heart. And Paul said, well, you know what? You're right. And he said, I have come to proclaim that God to you. And that's where we pick up today. Paul gets up there on Mars Hill, and he proceeds 
to preach. Now, I say he preaches. There is a sense in which this is not a sermon proper, at least not in the sense that Paul has preached in the past, in other places. Here, it's more of an address than it is a sermon. Now, he's going to get around to the gospel. He'll get around to preaching, but initially, it's really more of an address. Paul is still trying to reason with these people. He's not starting with the scriptures. He's not starting with the book of Genesis. He's not working his way through the prophets. He's not even working to the person of Jesus Christ just yet. What is he doing? He's starting off with the fact that these people are religious, that they are seeking for a God, an unknown God, who will satisfy the deepest longings of their hearts. And so that's where Paul starts. So I want to take a look at the body of this sermon. It really begins in verse 24 of today's lesson. Paul begins by saying, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands. The first thing Paul wants these people to understand is that they do not have to be in the dark about God. See, according to the Greeks and the Romans, man was down here and the gods were up there. And you really never could know the gods. You, you could perhaps know a little bit about the gods, but you could never know the gods. They lived up there on Mount Olympus or someplace like that, but they never, never made themselves known. What Paul was saying is that the only way you can know God the only way that God does not remain unknown, the Deus Absconditus, the hidden God, is if he makes himself known. Why? Well, because he is infinite and we are finite. So if God is going to be known, and you don't want to worship an unknown God, but a known God, he's got to speak. He's got to reveal himself. And Paul is saying that is exactly what he has done. You don't have to be in doubt or in darkness about God because he has made himself Known, the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul is saying, if you want to know this God, the first place you look is in the things that have been made. I pointed out to you last week, Paul regards atheism as an untenable position. He regards it as a completely untenable position. And we're not talking about agnosticism. We're talking about atheism. The conviction that there is no God, that there is no evidence for the existence of God. Paul says, take a look at the world around you. His signature has been written across everything that has been made. Romans chapter 1 is the great chapter on the hidden God, the unknown God. Where we're told the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who by their ungodliness do what? Suppress the truth. Paul says if people are at least open-minded, and of course that would have been something that would have appealed to these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, be open-minded, think about it for a minute. Take a look at the world around you. And there's plenty of evidence in nature that there is a God. So that's where Paul begins. By saying, look, this God is actually not as far from you as you think he is. He's not as hidden as you think he is. He's actually made himself known. That's the first thing. Second thing Paul goes on to say is, he not only made the world, but he sustains the world. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul's first argument as he addresses this gathering is that there is a God. He's revealed himself in the created order. And so he is the one who made all things. But he didn't just make all things. He sustains all things. That's the second part of Paul's argument. See, there were many people in the ancient world who believed that the world had been created by the gods, but the gods then sort of wound up the universe and sort of let it run on its own. And the one thing that the gods never did was interfere. Many of our founding fathers believe this. It's a philosophy known as deism. It's the belief that, that God is sort of distant and removed. This may come as a bit of a shock to some of you, but Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, um, Thomas Paine, all of these men were deists. Uh, you probably know that Thomas Jefferson actually had his own version of the Bible. It was not a big, thick, substantial thing like this. When he finished with it, it was about the size of the Sports Illustrated. And that's because he went through and he took out all of the supernatural aspects, all of the, the stories about God acting in history. No, they believed that there was a creator God because the creation bore witness to him. But he was a God who sort of created the world like a great clockmaker makes a clock and he winds it up and then he let it go. You know, the one thing you don't do with a clock, at least an antique clock, is once you wind it up is you take the back off it and try to mess around and see how it works. If you do that, you're going to do what? Gum up the works. So you didn't do that. And the Greeks believed that that's the way God operated. But Paul says that is not the case at all. Paul was bringing something revolutionary to these people. The God who created the world actually sustains the world. And that if he didn't sustain it, moment by moment, hour by hour, then the whole thing would cease to be. So you can see where Paul is beginning to go with this. He's reasoning with them. Think about it, he says. He is the one who sustains it. This is exactly what John says at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. He came down. He became a part of his creation that we might not simply know about him, that we might know him personally. Keep your finger there in Acts and flip over for just a moment to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Paul is talking about Jesus Christ here. And look at what he says in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the unknown God. <laughs> the firstborn of all creation... For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things, what? Hold together. 
Paul is saying to the Greeks, there is a God. He's made himself known in the things that have been made, but he is not a distant God. He's not removed. He is a God who has acted. He has come down. He's taken his place in the world, and he sustains it. Furthermore, Paul says, he is actively concerned for your life. The Old Testament says, when I consider the stars and the works of thy hands, I wonder, what is man, O Lord, that you are mindful of him? You ever thought about that? When you think about how many millions and millions of galaxies there are out there in the universe, how many millions and millions of planets, we're constantly discovering new planets, new stars, new solar systems. You have to wonder to yourself, all of that and all of the people on the face of the earth, all of the things that are transpiring across the globe, is God really interested with me? Oh, sure, God is interested in big things, but is he really interested in the individual? You and your little struggles, your little problems, your petty little issues. Have you ever wondered that? The psalmist wondered the same thing. What Paul is saying is, the God who created the heavens and the earth has acted in history. He is not distant and removed. And here's the best part, Paul says, he is deeply concerned for you. Deeply concerned for your life and for all of the struggles. And if you don't believe me, he says, he is the God who ordains all things. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Why are you here today? Why do you live here in Charleston, South Carolina? Why do you have the family that you have? There are all kinds of answers that you could give to those questions. You could say, well, I ended up in Charleston because of work. Or I ended up in Charleston because I married my spouse and she or he happened to be from this part of the world. There are any number of answers that we can give, but what Paul is saying is you are here because God appointed it. This is not an accident. You are here by divine appointment. So you don't have to think that life is like history, the succession of one damned thing after another. If you are in Christ, God has a plan for your life. The same God who created the universe, who sustains all things by the power of His Word, came down and took on human flesh because He is concerned about you. However great or small your problems may be. Can you imagine how revolutionary that must have been for the people of Paul's day, for the Greeks, for these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers? If you think about it, it's revolutionary today, isn't it? Because many people really think that there is no purpose to living. If you think about it, our world and 21st century American culture is filled with Epicureans and Stoics, isn't it? But we sit and look at this and we think, oh, well, that's Athens in the first century. Let me tell you something. That's New York, that's Chicago, that's Charleston in the 21st century. People out there just trying to what? Live it up. Because tomorrow we're going to die. Or if you can't live it up, just try to 
grin and bear it. And I'd like to believe that there's a God up there, but I'm not really sure. I pointed out to you, in the 20th century, many people argued, Bertrand Russell and other skeptics, Richard Dawkins, for example, at the dawn of the 21st century, have argued that science has disproven God. And we actually took a look at some of that. And we said there is actually more evidence from science today for the existence of God than in any other period in history. It's almost overwhelming, compelling. You actually have to fight against a belief in God in order to be an atheist these days. Richard Dawkins once said that he says that biology is the study of organisms that have the appearance of design. Now I want you to think about that for just a minute. Biology is the study of complex organisms which have the appearance of design. Now this is William Paley. William Paley in the 18th century was a famous English uh, philosopher and scientist. and He's the one that developed the idea of a belief in God from design. He said if you were traveling along the uh, beach one day and you, you came upon a a watch that had been dropped by a man, and you looked at that, wouldn't you automatically, even if you had never seen it before, you'd never seen a watch, wouldn't you assume, due to its complexity and the way that it operated, that it was designed? He says, well, take a look at the world around you. He says, the creation bears witness to a designer. Kind of sad. Biologists are really the last holdout when it comes to this sort of thing. My father was a biologist. Physicists are not. Physicists are actually willing to embrace the idea of at least a creator God. It's the biologists that have a hard time. Richard Dawkins has to tell his students you have to remind yourself that biology is the study of complex organizations that have the appearance of design. Why do you have to remind them? Because they look at it and they think there must be a designer. Oh, no, 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 you have to fight against that. You have to suppress that kind of a feeling. Well, any child knows that if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it looks like a duck, chances are it's a what? It's a duck. Well, that's what Paul was trying to get through to these people. God is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the ordainer. And because of that, here's where Paul goes for the sale. He says, we should seek him. We should be looking for that God. Not for Zeus, not for Poseidon or Neptune, not for Hephaestus, not for Athena, not for Apollo, not for Hermes. You should be looking for who? You should be looking for this God, the creator, the sustainer, the one who has made himself known and is not very far from us, the one who has ordained the boundaries of your life and mine. And he goes on to say, if you think about it, he is not actually far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, he said, look at yourself. 
Human beings are made in the image of God. Now, regardless of whether you believe in evolutionary science or not, and some people will say, well, we're nothing but highly evolved apes. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you saw an ape write a symphony? Last time you saw an ape write a symphony. When was the last time you saw an ape read a book, construct a library, develop a civilization? We all know, children know, when they go to the zoo, apes are remarkable creatures. They may even have a, a degree of empathy toward their young. But every child recognizes very early on there is a profound difference, not just in terms of morphology, but in terms of being between a human and an ape. We recognize there's a profound difference between the two. And it's not a difference in degree, it is a difference in kind. And that was what Paul was saying here. He said, look at yourself. You are different from everything else that has been made. And that's because you have been made in the image of of God. You are a reflection of His glory. And if that is the case, why would you think that the deity in whose name and in whose image you have been created is made of stone or wood or lives in a temple made by human hands? It's a very powerful argument that Paul is making here. He's not preaching so much as he's what? Asking them to just reason through what they believe. He said, well, if that's the case, then we need to recognize that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. And he now commands all people everywhere to repent. I find it very interesting here on Mars Hill that Paul says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but no more. I think that's a very powerful indictment to people living at the dawn of the 21st century when we have more evidence for the existence of God than at any other point in the history of the world. And Paul says, times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he what? He commands all people everywhere to repent. Isn't it interesting? Paul doesn't invite them. He says God commands repentance. Why does God command it? Well, if you follow Paul's arguments, because God is what? He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the ordainer. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is sovereign. And when you're dealing with a sovereign, you are dealing with what? A king, a master, a monarch. And monarchs don't invite you to do anything. They command it. I want you to understand something about kings in the ancient world. They were not... Elected officials. They did not run for re-election. They ruled by divine right. You didn't get invited to a garden party. You were commanded to appear. And if you didn't, there was trouble. Jesus told parables about this. Let me tell you something about people who decided that they couldn't go when the king ordered a marriage feast for his son. And what did the king go out and do to those people that had refused to come? He put them to the sword, is what Jesus said. So what Paul is saying to the Athenians is, there was a time when God overlooked ignorance, but no more. 
Because God is not hidden. He has made himself known, and he has made himself known supremely, and here it comes, by sending his Son. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That was the clincher. And look at how it ends. Verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You know, it's hard to preach to intellectuals. Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I suspect the same is true for those who are intellectually wealthy. We think we have all the answers. Oftentimes, with great intellect comes great pride. Great pride. Well, the question we have to ask ourselves, was Paul successful at Athens? Well, one thing is very clear. He was interrupted when he came to the resurrection. They were willing to listen to him up to that point, but when he began to talk about people dying and rising again, we're told that some mocked. Others said, we will hear you about this at a later point. I think those reactions are the same reactions we can expect in our day and age. You can reason with people up to a point, but sooner or later they have to be confronted with the message of Jesus Christ the message of their own sins, the message of his atoning sacrifice, and the message of the resurrection, and that one day that same Jesus is going to come again to do what? To set this broken, fallen, sinful world right. He will come to judge the living and the dead, and we all have to face that sooner or later. And when you confront people with that reality, you're going to find that some are going to mock. That's what happened to Paul in Athens. Some mocked, and some will mock us. Others will say, we will hear you again about this. In other words, this is interesting, but I'm not ready to make a decision just yet. And they'll do what? They'll kick the can down the road a little bit later. They'll think to themselves, oh, I know, someday I need to think about these things, but I'm having too much fun right now. I'll put it off until a more convenient time. Have you ever known anybody said that? Maybe you have children that say that. Lots of young people today say, well, I'll wait for a, a more convenient time. It's not that I don't think that these are important things. They are, but you've got to understand, I'm young. I've got my whole life ahead of me, and I'm going to wait to a more convenient time. Let me ask you the question, what's going to make it more convenient? If you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ today, and you're waiting for a convenient time, what are you going to be doing in the interval between now and that more convenient time. <laughs> you're darn right, you're going to be sinning. And that is going to do what? It's not going to soften the heart toward God. The only thing it's going to do is harden the heart toward God. This is why the scripture says today, today is the day of decision. Today is the day. I think one thing is very clear. Paul had a hard time in Athens. Some mocked 
Some said, we'll hear you about this later. Some believed, but they were few. The response in Athens is nothing like what Paul had experienced in other places. As far as we can tell, no church was established here in Athens after Paul's first journey there. That's unlike almost any other place that he went. Paul would write letters to the church in Philippi, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Ephesus, to the churches of Galatia. He never wrote a letter to the church in Athens. Hard to minister in that kind of an environment, in this kind of an environment. And it's hard to minister in this kind of an environment as well. Well, that brings us now to Acts chapter 18. Paul leaves Athens, he's there for a relatively short period of time, and he moves on to Corinth. Before we move on to Corinth, let me just pause, not something I do on a regular basis, to see if you have any questions about Paul's time in Athens and his time among the, the Greeks, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Martha? Well, some people don't lose their earthly legacies. That's, that's the reality. Um, that may have been the case with Joe Paterno, but it's not always the case. But the scripture says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but still loses his soul? And that's just something for us to consider. Oh, well, it's interesting. Um, what Paul says here, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to get through so much of this information. But one of the things that um, Paul says here when he talks about um, seeking the God who has made himself known, turn to verse 26. Um, he says, God created all things and he sustains all things. He said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries in their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. That expression, that they might feel their way toward him and find him, is really interesting. Because in Homer's story of Odysseus, you'll recall that he got into a battle with the Cyclops, and he blinded the Cyclops. It is the exact same Greek verb that is used here, where Paul says that we might seek out and find him, it's the same word that is used to describe the Cyclops groping around to find Odysseus. He was, he was feeling around in order to find Odysseus. And Paul is saying God has made himself known in the things that have been made so that if we are willing to at least reach out and feel around, we will find him. Indeed, he says he is not very far from us. 
So when people say, oh, well, there's just not enough evidence, how much evidence do you need? You know, oftentimes you find that that's an excuse. I've often said that poor Thomas, I, I don't like that we call him Doubting Thomas. You know, Thomas was courageous. When Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, it was Thomas of all the disciples. When the others said, oh, no, we can't go to Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem, and the scribes and the Pharisees are, are going to launch an attack against you. You're going to be put to death. You, Lord, this is not the time. And it was Thomas who said, well, if he must go and die, let us go and die with him. Now, it wasn't Peter that said that, or James, or John. It was Thomas. Nobody ever remembers courageous Thomas. All I remember is doubting Thomas. Well, actually, they all doubted. They all refused to believe. When Mary showed up there at the door knocking and said, I've been to the tomb, and they've taken the Lord, and I, I, I think he's alive again, what did they say? I don't know what you've been smoking. <laughs> now, that's a loose translation. That's the Miller Amplified Version. But it's something very similar to that. They said it must have been his ghost. They wouldn't believe. They doubted. Where were they living? Jesus had said that he had to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, betrayed at the hands of his own people, crucified, and on the third day, what? Rise again. He had told them that over and over again over the course of three years. You would have thought that in light of everything that Jesus done on prior occasions, that on that third day they would have been waiting with bated breath, and instead they were waiting behind bolted and locked doors. I've always felt bad for poor Thomas, so that when Thomas goes out to the grocery store or whatever, and he comes back, and Jesus has appeared to the other disciples, and they say, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, I don't believe it. In fact, unless I can take my hand and put it in the hole in his side, unless I can take my fingers and put them in the nail prints, I will not believe. Now, you know that Jesus appeared on a later occasion, and Thomas was there. And I believe Jesus forced Thomas to explore the wounds. I, I rather imagine that when Jesus appeared on that scene with those holes in his hands and that hole in his side and the wounds in his forehead, and he said, all right, Thomas, come here. I think at that point Thomas was like, I'm good. <laughs> I got it. I got it. <laughs> I rather suspect that Jesus said, no, 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 no. You come over here, Thomas. You wanted to see what well, you're going to see, brother. There's a famous painting by an Italian artist that actually shows Jesus forcing Thomas's hand into his side. Why did Jesus reprimand Thomas? The problem was not that Thomas required evidence in order to believe. Ours is an historical faith, my friends. It's based upon real historical facts. If Jesus did not physically, bodily rise from the grave, we're all wasting our time. And maybe the Greeks were right in that sense. Life is meaningless. But he did rise from the dead. And it's based upon solid evidence profound evidence. Now, not proof. You don't get proof in anything, in anything of value in life. I pointed out to you before, the only time you get proof is in mathematics. But you do get evidence, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. The problem for Thomas was not that he required evidence, but the problem for Thomas was that he'd been given ample evidence. He'd seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He had seen Jairus' daughter raised from the dead, the widow of Nain's son raised from the dead. He had seen the lepers cleansed on the border of Samaria. He'd seen Jesus walk on the water and calm the sea. He'd seen Jesus take five loaves of bread and two small fish and feed 5,000 people. What more do you need? Now, people say, well, if I had seen something like that, I'd believe. Really? 
I'll tell you right now, we've got more powerful evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead than even they did. Look around you. The church, my friends, is one of the most powerful illustrations of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It started off with about 120 people, poor, beleaguered, persecuted people. And it was led by people who were not giants, fearless men. They were cowards. They were weak. They were vacillating. And in the short span of 300 years, without ever firing a shot, they managed to bring to its knees the most powerful temporal empire the world had ever known, the very empire that had tried to stamp it out. Over the course of the 100 years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was on average a messianic uprising every single year. That's why the Jews were so contentious and troublesome to the Romans. Pontius Pilate, you're going to be made a governor. Ooh, great. That's the good news. What's the bad news? You're going to be the governor of Palestine. Oh. Very difficult to be the governor of the Jews. Very difficult. But the Romans knew how to deal with messianic uprisings. You know what you do? You cut off the head and the movement dies. And every one of the movements dies. There was only one movement in the first century where they killed the Messiah and the movement continued to grow and to grow and to grow until it filled the whole earth. And in the short span of 300 years, in an age before cell phones and the internet and telephones and automobiles, it spread like a wildfire. And here we are 2,000 years later. What but a resurrection can do that? We've got ample evidence. And if we are willing, like the Cyclops, to grope around and feel for him, we will find him. He's not very far from us. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Today is the day of decision. Don't put it off. Todd. Well, the Jews were always looking for a Messiah to come. And, um, but most of the time they were thinking in terms of a political or a military messiah. Um, somebody who would come and deliver them. But what they regarded themselves as being oppressed by were these pagan polytheistic Romans. They were the ones that needed to be driven out and they needed to be delivered from that. And they believed that when the messiah came, the messiah would reestablish the glory days of Israel. A restoration of the great days of King David. And so every time they, there were all kinds of movements where somebody would claim to be doing that. And those were the messianic movements. But one Messiah came and he said, I've not come to be lifted up on a throne. I've come to be lifted up on a tree. Now the problem with that was the Old Testament said, cursed is man who's hanged upon a tree. This Messiah came and said, I've not come to establish a kingdom of bricks, mortar, and stone, a kingdom that advances by force of arms. I've come to establish a spiritual kingdom in men's hearts. And it was that kingdom that they wanted to squash, and it was that kingdom that filled the whole earth. And that's the great messianic movement. 
Well, that uh, exhausts all our time today. Next week, when we come back, we're going to take a look at Paul in Corinth. Um, Paul would spend a year and a half in Corinth. That was a considerable amount of time, significantly longer period of time in Corinth than in any of the other places that Paul had been up to this point. He had stayed at most a few weeks, maybe a few months in these other places. When he comes to Corinth, he'll be there for a year and a half. We're going to see a tweaking of the missionary strategy. Paul's still going to focus on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world, but we're going to notice that he's going to spend considerable amount of times in the other cities. He's going to spend almost two years in Ephesus, two years in Caesarea Maritima, before he goes on to Jerusalem and on to Rome. So we're going to see that there's considerable amount of time spent in these great cities. Brian. Well, not next week. Thank you. I'll be here. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, no, it'll be two weeks uh, from today because that's right. Next week is Thanksgiving. So um, don't show up here. Um, but we'll see you in two weeks. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy. As we approach the study of Corinth, and Paul's time there, we're going to see that Paul was discouraged. Discouraged because things did not go as he expected them to go in Athens, or perhaps as he had hoped that they would go in Athens. And sometimes, Lord, we seek to minister the gospel in our day, and we find that the results are meager at best. Things do not go as we had expected. Sometimes they don't go as we had hoped. But grant us the grace to be faithful. No one is ever going to hear, well done, thou good and successful servant. What you want from us is to be faithful. So grant us the grace to persevere as Paul persevered. And as we will see, for fruit, great fruit for the gospel in that remarkable city of Corinth. Grant us the grace, Lord, to do the same in our own time and in our own city. For Jesus' sake, amen.